right. Gather round. But I'm warning you, this is not a tale for the faint of heart. Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Happy Halloween and welcome to episode 65 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're discussing horror in Star Trek. Does it have a place? And what are the franchise's spookiest, scariest episodes? To have that conversation with me is Batman Family Reunion's own Paul Kien. Hi, Paul. Hello, Captain. Uh, permission to come aboard. Permission granted. All right. <laughs> The whole VIP treatment. We've been partners on other shows, but uh, this is your first time on Gimme That Star Trek. It is. I'm very excited. Before we can go further, uh, you have to answer the short questionnaire that demonstrates the kind of Trek fan you are. You got it. I'm ready. Okay. Well, let's jump into it. First, what does Trek mean to you? How did you become a fan? Although old, I was not old enough to watch when the original series premiered. I was one year old when it first came on, so I was too young Mm. to see it. Uh, of course, as I grew up, I saw it in syndication. I was very intrigued. And after I'd re- watched enough, what I really got into, what really made me a big fan, were the early novels. I discovered them pretty young, probably in the mid to late 70s, sort of like James Blish adaptions of the episodes and the news right. stories. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Spock Messiah. And then one of my early favorites was The Price of the Phoenix by Sandra Marshak and Mon- Myrna Colbreth, uh, as uh, well as a bunch of other of those early sort of Um, novels. And so from that, I loved all the books before I had even seen the episodes. When Pocket Books started their line, I was all in. I collected them all like they were comics, right? They would come out every other month or something, and uh, it was great. So then the movie came out, and then there were lots of comic books. I bought every issue from Marvel and eventually from DC, which were much better than the Marvel ones. Uh, I love how they got around the constraints of the movies in between them, like when Spock wasn't there, where they didn't have the Enterprise, they got the Mirror Enterprise, all that kind of stuff. Terrific, terrific stuff. And that's how it was up until Next Generation. But then I was all in. I I watched and recorded on my VCR every episode. (laughs) And um, still to this day, I remember uh, falling off my chair uh, with the Best of Both Worlds cliffhanger at Season 3. And so since then, I've watched every iteration. And while I enjoy some more than others, I like them all. And what does that mean to me? Well... They're great adventure stories, great sci-fi twists. I, I love all that, you know, and I, I love lots of science fiction. But to me, what makes Star Trek different, it's the vision of the future and the humanity can be better than it is today. Sometimes people think, oh, the Federation's perfect. And that's not really the case. It's, it's that the people are striving to be the best they can be. You know, they have adventures, but they're really just trying to do the right thing for everyone involved, not just themselves. We have too many, you know, the world today is very selfish, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that's very appealing about Star Trek is they're really trying to do the right thing for everyone. 
to be honest, I've always thought it works better as a TV than, than movies. I love, I love the movies, but there are so many, many episodes that are better than the movies. First Contact by my favorite movie, but I still love love the you know this periodic the episodic nature rather uh, of Star Trek the best. Yeah, I think the movies go for big action, right. big moments, and I like it, but it's not the same. Yeah, well, you lose the moral fable element, right. and you lose a lot of the supporting character stuff. You know, it, it's I mean, I love Picard and Data and, and Riker and Worf, but you know, I'd like to see what's happening with the other guys too. Well, do you have a favorite iteration of the show? I did. I thought about this one a long time, and uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to break it into traditional versus new Trek, okay? Okay, yeah. So for traditional, I think objectively the best was Deep Space Nine, but my favorite still has to be Next Generation. It's like a comfortable pair of shoes, you know? It's just – it it just you can turn on any episode at any time and really just enjoy it. Uh, For new Trek, you know, I love them all. You know, Discovery gets a lot of – Flack, but you know, that took chances, uh, that did a real different thing. You know, when, I, when there's a character that solves a problem like catching an asteroid and yells, That's the power of math, I gotta love it, you know. <laughs> but, but I have to say, my, my favorites are Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks. Strange New Worlds is everything that's good about Star Trek, and I think they have a great format. They got ongoing relationships and subplots with an adventure of the week, and it's almost like a Bronze Age comic book, right? Lower Decks is just hysterical, uh, but respectful of Star Trek and has just a ton of heart. And, and and that's why I like that one so much. A big fan of both as well. Yeah. You named a lot of them. <laughs> I did. I did. I did you did, did cheat. I did uh, cheat. But, but do you have a favorite character among all of these iterations or any iteration? You know, your favorite could be Neelix. That's, that's fine. Yeah. So I'm going to say, again, on the traditional side, you know, like everybody else, I love uh, Riker and Worf. And, you know, I love Kira and, you know, Deep Space Nine, you got to give special mention to Dukat and Garak as best recurring characters. But my favorite character still has to be Jean-Luc Picard. I think it's safe to say he's had the most character development with, you know, the possible exception of Worf over the past 35 years. But in general, Deep Space Nine had the best characters. Uh, with New Trek, I'm going to go with a tie between Saru and Mariner. I think Saru has just such nobility about him, and Mariner is just a joy. She's always getting into trouble, just like the rest of them, but she still has the heart of some of the best characters in Star Trek. That may be the most controversial thing you've said. Yeah. I, I know I, a lot of people like can't take Mariner. <laughs> I know, but I, I, I love her. I love her. What about your favorite alien race or culture in the Trek universe? All right, this one I didn't cheat. I thought about it a lot again. And, you know, you've got so many that are great, that developed such a, a great culture and Klingons and Vulcans, which are great. But I have to go to the interactions and drama between the Kardashians and the Bajorans. I think, you know, I was hooked on this relationship by the first season episode duet with Kira and that supposed butcher guy. Remember that mm-hmm. episode? And one of my favorites, you know, and I was like, wow, this is going to be something a little different than the rest of Star Trek. All right. Good choices. Well, that's your Star Trek cred. Yes. We're going to be talking about horror in Star Trek. So what's your horror cred? Yeah, I want to hear what you have to say about this too, because I, I, I thought about this because I was like, well, this is an interesting one for me. I'm not a big straight on horror gore type of I didn't grow up with that. That wasn't my thing. I like suspense and action and murder mysteries and spy stuff and that kind of stuff. But but the gore part isn't really you know my thing from a TV and, and movie standpoint. When I think about it from a comic standpoint, I never got into younger. But as an adult, I have, of course, read and enjoyed you know Swamp Thing and Sandman, Tomb of Dracula and all that stuff that I kind of missed when I was a kid. I've been reading a lot of them lately, like The House of Mystery and The House of Secrets, and enjoying most of that. Hmm. But most of the modern horror comics, like 
the image ones and written by like Scott Snyder and James Tinian. Every time I try one of them, I'm kind of put off. I, you know, I like some of the stuff they've done on the superhero side, but I, it's, it's a bit much for me. I will say, though, listening to the House of Frankenstein this year, and uh, which is a great show, and and uh, what they did one on the Invisible Man, and I, I was very intrigued that I did that is on my Amazon watch list, and uh, by the time this comes out, I will probably have watched that, and uh, and I think the classic stuff might be more my taste, sort of less gore and more suspense, and that's kind of the stuff that we're going to see on the Star Trek episodes too, sort of the suspense and you know kind of stuff. The things they can do on TV, yeah. Yeah, how can I bet you? I I wasn't a horror kid. Yeah, and and you did give an answer that sounds like someone who doesn't watch a lot of horror would yeah would say by by which I mean that you associate horror with gore. Yeah, and uh, and that's not the only possibility, right? There's a big strand of that, and some movies kind of live and die <laughs> based on that element. Yeah. Thinking of, you know, the George Romero zombie movies, for example. Right. You know, the right. Excessive, spectacular gore. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be that. that. That's the thing about horror. What is it? And it's so wide. I mean, it's got stuff, it's got comedy horror, it's got spooky stuff for kids, mm-hmm. you know, the hocus pocus kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Also fits in that genre. The Universal, the original Universal horror films i mean they're not gory obviously they're not gory they go for the gothic they get gorier with the hammer horror versions Mm -hmm. there are so many there's gonna be psychological horror that can be now it's becoming a cliche but the elevated horror stuff Mm. that has become a bit formulaic by this point but originally you know it's really about the trauma of or Mm. it's about another something else and you're sort of deciphering it and there may be moments of gore but they may be pretty rare actually in some of those movies there's slashers there's stuff that's it's more brainy there's like the satanic stuff there's so many sub-genres within the horror genre it's hard to pinpoint so as a kid i was not a horror fan that kind of freaked me out i remember even watching even like early college seeing an episode of x-files and it had like a gore moment and that's a tv gore moment Mm. it can't be too bad and going on that this show isn't for me i've since seen every episode obviously but Mm, (laughs) then it was like oh that wasn't my my thing and maybe a little bit like yourself my gateway was comics because yes i'd read some tomb of dracula as it came out in french so maybe a couple years (laughs) after got it but vertigo the vertigo comics are pre-vertigo going into vertigo i was reading a lot of horror but comic book horror so it's not quite the same even at the mature readers level it's not quite the same as a horror movie and i certainly never got into horror novels i can't stand stephen king and the kind of it doesn't do anything for me one stephen king book i don't know 30 years ago i forget the dead zone i think it was and sure. I was like, ugh, I'm not reading this again. <laughs> but I, but it was like I was up till 2 a.m. reading it because I was like, oh, my God, what's happening next? And then I was like, ah, I, can't, yeah. I can't deal with this. Yeah. I was big in science fiction and fantasy, and right. they may have horror elements sometimes, but not novels. It, and, and that's never happened for me. And I, since, I, you know, I'm a big movie watcher, and I've watched a lot of horror films. I'm watching one a day minimum throughout October. And I've been doing that for a few years as well, and I've got – friends who are much more into horror and horror kids and they've guided me up to a point and now at this point i I know what i'm gonna maybe like and i i'm good at finding different things but horror is never for me about getting scared so that's one of my problems maybe it freaked me out as a kid and today it only works on me intellectually so i look at these horror films and i'm 
marveling at the execution. It's like, oh, a, a jump scare. Of course, I might have jumped in, like in a theater or something. With the critic's eye that you are, the critic yeah, that that's, you are. But that's not, that's not, I'm not afraid. Oh, you, you startled me with a noise. You know, <laughs> I'm startled. I'm not scared. Uh, and I don't go, I don't, dr well, all my dreams are always kind of horror-y anyways, and they've always <laughs> been so. So it's, it's not, it's not making me have bad dreams, you know. So I'm enjoying it on, I'm looking for the other level, or if there is no other level, I'm laughing at it, or, you know, I'm liking the practical effects, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, there's that whole other branch as well, which isn't scary to me at all, which is the adventure, uh, the more like uh, we're fighting the supernatural, which isn't the same as a horror story. So Buffy or yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. And they're fighting the supernatural, so there's immediate catharsis there's immediate we've yeah. resolved the, the the horror well hopefully and so there's a lot of that kind of material as well right it seems like a lot less of horror and a lot more sort of adventure and comic booky and super yeah 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 I, so i've consumed a lot of that stuff as well one of the things that's fun about horror films is that they can be bad and it's much more forgivable than a lot of other genres <laughs> A bad comedy is terrible. A bad drama is boring. Uh, you know, a, a bad horror film... It can be funny. <laughs> it, it's fun. Yeah, exactly. So, And people are making bad ones uh, or with little means, and it's still watchable somehow, even though it's obviously terrible production values, terrible script. Um, and maybe there's something in there that you haven't seen before. Some special effects, some gore moment, some funny line or whatever uh, that makes it memorable. And, and so that's why there are so many, like a cottage industry of bad horror films from back in the video cassette days. Well, even from back in the drive-in days when you needed more than one feature, you know, there's lots. So I've become a fan of horror over time. But now, does that mean that horror works for me or for you or for anyone within a Star Trek context? That's a whole other story. You said it yourself, the idealistic future. Does that play against any kind of horror tension? And even in science fiction in general, does horror make sense because we have scientific explanations for everything? So there's a question for you before we even get into Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Think about the movie Alien and Aliens, right? That's right. horror sci-fi, but is right. it more horror or science fiction? I'd argue it's more horror. Science fiction to me has some – some. it's funny. There's sort of a hard science fiction where it's just, you know – uh, extrapolation 10, 20 years from today, right? And of, of something that's going to happen. And there's the Star Trek, which you've got a lot of techno babble, but there's rationality to it. And, and Aliens, it was, you know, and I've seen the, I've seen at least two or three of those movies and they're always jump scares and suspense. And it, it seems a lot less science fiction-y to me than horror. I'm curious what you thought about that. It's interesting. We are not sharing notes, but we're, you know, talked about alien, the alien films, Exactly where I had the word oh. alien. <laughs> oh, down. that's too funny. Okay, because that's that's almost where I was going to. Like alien to me is a horror film. Yes, first maybe. Of course, it's a hybrid. Aliens, the next one, is more sci-fi because here they're they're fighting the alien. I mean, there's still the creep factor. There's still the jump scares. There's still there's still a horror vibe. But James Cameron is doing a science fiction action film. Where in the first one, they're stuck in a haunted house with a monster. I see. And it's about uh, visceral sex imagery, that first one. A man gives birth, a creature pops out of his gut. There's the, the jamming of a magazine in someone's mouth. The robots explode into a white liquid. You know, and, and at the end, Ripley, she's all alone, and she's being attacked by one of these phallic-looking aliens. 
while in her underwear as she prepares to go and cryo sleep. So it's about that. And so that's that's an elevated horror moment. You know, it's about a real fear, anxiety that exists in our culture about a real element of violence recreated as a monster. And then set that monster loose against people who cannot fight it. In Aliens, they've all got the guns. I mean, they, they die. But they all yeah. have the guns. Uh, leave her alone, you bitch. You know, the whole... Yeah, yeah. The thing with the mech suit. That's a sci-fi action adventure. And maybe like the third one, we get back to horror. There's people stuck in a prison. You know, a lot of sex offenders in a prison. Ripley stuck in there with them. And a phallic-looking creature. You know, so... Uh, we get back to to horror, whether that movie works or not. You always make me think of things in a different way. That's why I like listening to you and talking to you. So that's that's really interesting. So I think you can do sci-fi and horror, and, and Star Trek has tried to do that. The thing with trap with with a monster, a lot of slashers would fall into that category. You're just trapped in an environment with a killer. Uh, can you do that on Star Trek? Because your crews have to survive. <laughs> so that's another reason why it doesn't quite work. You know, you, you can do Star Trek does a lot of psychological horror, paranoid horror. We'll talk about some of those episodes. I think that's where a lot of the Star Trek horror goes to. You can't trust the next person and they're possessed or something, right? You can't do supernatural per se, unless you have a scientific explanation for it. You can do hallucinations. There are some episodes that do that and hallucinations can go into body horror. Voyager was very body horror. In a way, you know, something like Charlie X is horror. You know, a kid with psychic powers, mm. it's Village of the Damned. It's, you know, there are horror moments in that, even if we didn't really consider it for this episode, you know. But that's the Stephen King branch, I feel. You know, a bunch of hallucinations caused by something evil. You're trapped with something with a monster in the ship or something. They've done that a couple times as well. Gothic horror... That's harder to, to get into, but they do do that kind of stuff as well. So it's about emulating a genre. You know, it's like looking at those genres and saying, well, what if it happened on our Star Trek shipper station? You know, and the ones that we went back and rewatched and, and considered for this episode, there's definitely elements. Um, I'll say this. I enjoyed pretty much all of them on the rewatch, but none of them were what I'd call, with, with maybe one or two exceptions, you know, among the... The best of their shows, right? So I don't know if that says anything that what would commonly be considered the best of any given series. I'm not sure any of these make the top, I don't know, five of each of the series. You know what I mean? Yeah. Top five is, is tough. That's tough. Because, maybe because there's maybe a lot there's of good couple, trek, right? Yeah. Maybe there's a couple top tens. Of the, a couple maybe. Of, maybe. But I'm not even sure about that. What we did was look at the original, uh, the classic series, which is to say TOS to Enterprise. And in each of these casts, we didn't go to, I mean, we could have uh, bonus content, you know, looking at other things. And I will mention one Strange New Worlds episode later that kind of fits what we're looking at. But we kind of selected one, we looked at lists uh, and used our memories, and we selected one to watch per show. And then if we had time, we could look at other ones. You know, I watched a couple other ones. I know you watched a bunch of other ones. And I don't think that we necessarily picked the scariest or the best ones in each show you know i think some of the bonus content that we watch might have been better yeah well let's let's find out <laughs> we'll find out although i i would say that uh, if we go in, in order of shows our tos selection is wolf in the fold it's the jack ripper is an alien force episode and i think this is this is the best one that was on our list um Agree, disagree? Ah, I, I, the best one on our list, I liked one of the alternates better. So I'll put it that way. 
Okay, an alternate. Yeah, but on our list, on our list we, of the five we picked, yes, I will agree with that. It was written by Robert Block, who wrote Psycho. In the third and last episode that he wrote, uh, he did Cat Spa as well, which I know you watched, but uh, to me is um, Planet of the Halloween Decorations. Yeah, it's a little ho- hokier. Yeah, it's definitely hokey. Yeah. And Cat Spa is fun because it came out, you know, is the only episode, Star Trek episode, that could be called a Halloween special. It came out 27 October. 1967. Yeah. So I like your characterization of it. It's like Chris Franklin's lawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blow molds. <laughs> so he's got blow molds all over. He had originally also written the, the um, What Are Little Girls Made Of, which had Lovecraftian beings evoked, old ones or something, which is also kind of the plot behind Cat Spot. These are these ancient aliens that look like something Lovecraft might have thought up, you know. But this one, Wolf in the Fold, serial killer, Jack the Ripper possesses or it's not clear actually did he possess scotty and then scotty kills a woman at the beginning of this or did he cloud scotty's mind while he has killed her oh my god it's just so funny because i have my notes on this episode and then in red at the bottom i have question did jack actually inhabit bodies <laughs> like Scotty, for example, did he make Scotty kill the girls? Or you know, I always thought so, but when I rewatched it, I was like, no, he he sort of knocked Scotty out, and then somehow Hengist is there. Yeah, he came into H- yeah. being somehow. So it was not clear to me whether a possessed Scotty actually killed those girls. But but I think my most recent watching, just you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was like. I don't think so. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I, I think that would have been a step too far. Yeah, I think that's right. To have Scotty's actual hand be doing it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's strong horror stuff where you can't trust the person that you think you can trust. Yep. He can trust himself. You know, he doesn't know if he's done it. Imagine if he had done it. They pushed it that far. Yep. How horrific. Knowing that you physically did it, even though you were possessed by, by some force. Um, you know, that would have been... What I was most impressed about was how they didn't shy away from the blood. No. Mid-60s, yeah. I would not have expected... Technicolor blood. <laughs> yeah, technicolor blood. You've got... It's not so much like, you know, he's holding the knife and there's blood on it. Ah, fine. It's the second kill where he kills um, a yeoman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's on the floor and she has multiple stab wounds all over her back in blood. Yeah. I didn't remember they did that. I did not remember <laughs> that either. I, like I said, I've been a long time since I watched this episode. I highly enjoyed it. I, You know, I thought there's a couple things they could have done, like... When he went into the computer and controlled life support, that's inherently Mm. scary. And we've seen that many other times where life support is not, you know, which is so important on a spaceship, right, is not being controlled by the crew. That's inherently scary. But they didn't do a whole lot with that. It was scary that it was disembodied, but they didn't do a whole lot with the life support thing. It was much more about the the stabbing, which, you know, makes sense. It's Jack the Ripper, I guess. It gets scarier when uh, Red Jack goes back into the bodies and then you know they're yeah. animating yeah. guy's dead he's back alive yeah, he's attacking yeah they have some pretty good spooks in there you've got robert block using some imagery for things that we can't really feel from the screen you know he's scotty describes it as the stench of the slaughterhouse you know <laughs> that the feeling that he had inside so you've got stuff like that 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 works well with the horror hengist who is the host mm-hmm. of Red Jack at this point. You think at first he's the mayor from Jaws. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is all nonsense, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in actuality, he's trying to cover his tracks and he's the actual killer. So you've got like the, the whodunit. He doth protest too much. Yes. He yeah, the whodunit horror of, of a scream, for example, you know, like who's actually doing it. 
you got some of that in there as well. But it's essentially a possession story where the possessor turns you into a slasher. Or he's slashing while and, and then framing you. This is the first episode that we watched. Yep. And I felt like this is where I started putting the pieces together about what to say about horror in Star Trek. Or horror in sci-fi. Which is the problem with explanations. Like both genres can have explanations, but SF is always trying to explain the supernatural away. Right. And I think that weakens the fear. Yeah, well, it doesn't make the characters any less afraid. Whether this embodied spirit was Jack the Ripper, who, which was a pretty cool idea that it sort of transferred through space from Earth, you know, and it was mm-hmm. just a stopping point. I thought that was a clever sci-fi idea. And the resolution was dispersing his atoms, right? So that's a science-y, science fiction-y types of stuff. It still works, I think. I think this is the best one. I think this is the one that works the best, maybe because TOS takes place at a time where there was more unknown, perhaps. and Or just the Red Jack creature just makes more sense. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what actually works in this episode, and that is often supporting a lot of these other episodes that we watch, and it's the direction. Hmm. Yes, the blood, but the fog, the oh, yeah. shadows. Yeah. Low lighting, we'll see a lot of that throughout these episodes. The seance with the shot from above, (laughs) which is a very rare shot for TOS. There's a shot where in the house, in the the magistrate's house, there's a a chair. And Scotty sits in this chair. He's close to this chair. And with the lighting, etc. And the chair seems to have like a big black spider as part of it. It's a shot like that. It's like, oh, there's like this spider, which is supposed to be maybe not. It's not a manifestation of Red Jack, but, you know, it's a symbol for Red Jack, who is the spider inside Scotty hunting or something. Wow. Cool. I didn't, I didn't catch that one. And I feel like a lot of the direction, it's like, okay, I'm, we're going to do a horror episode. And some of these plots remove the atmosphere and you could do it as a straight sci-fi plot. And we would not have thought of it as a horror plot. Hmm. I think the flat lighting... But it's not so flat because the original series always had like very stylized lighting. But the more bright lighting of Charlie X, for example, I think that's why we never thought of it as a horror episode. Interesting. Yeah, and it didn't appear on any of the lists that we uh, looked up either. Yeah, that's interesting. No, but you've got a lot of horror films that are about the creepy kid yep, yep. with psionic powers. Yep, yep. There's a lot of that. It's The Shining, you know, so why not? The reason why not is I think it doesn't look like horror, whereas Wolf in the Fold does look like horror. All right, so Catspot did not pass the test (laughs) in this case. So let's move to TNG. We decided to watch Schisms, which may or may not have been a good idea, but um, (laughs) I don't know. I thought it was creepier than it actually was before watching it. That's a great way. I had to say, I, I remembered this as creepier than it was when I actually watched it. That's fascinating. We had the same same note. Mm-hmm. It's got like one creepy scene, really, or a couple creepy scenes. But it's uh, this is the one with, about alien abduction, which is a horror trope. The alien abduction, it's not used very frequently, but of course it was like the basis for X-Files. So it's more psychological. It's paranoia. And like I said, I think Star Trek does paranoia pretty well. It's the one where, you know, people are getting kidnapped during the night and when they wake up, they don't know it, but when they wake up, they've had surgical alterations and it's the reveals of these changes or the fact that Riker is burnt out and that makes it work but it's mostly a scientific mystery yeah it's more mystery than horror I agree with that because mm-hmm. I mean other than being creeped out before and and even this time the you know the most notable thing is the realization that Riker had his arm severed and then sewn back on it's like 
Yeah, I think that's the uh, shocker. That's, that's uh, right. And they've all had this experience, yeah. and they're they're, you know, they they recreate the um, abductor's room in the holodeck, and it's it's kind of chilling, you know, that they'd recognize. Although because it's TV and because they can't show us every iteration of the table, yeah, it just like seems to jump like from oh, it's a wooden table. No, suddenly it's a surgical table with armature. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was perfect. How do we get there <laughs> very quickly? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I thought I thought that was funny too. <laughs> But we've got, you know, wobbly camera work. We got low light levels. Like it's always the night shift in this one, yeah. it seems. So that works well. Camera in odd spots uh, on the other side of the warp drive wall. And you're sort of seeing reflections high above the room, that kind of stuff. That's supposed to be off-putting and making us think, oh, something's weird. Something's off. Yeah. And that's what makes it recognizable as a horror episode, even though it's kind of not except for those few moments, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of mind frack episodes in Star Trek Point Blank. We might have watched Whispers from uh, DS9. We might have watched, like, Frame of Mind. You watched Frame of Mind, right? I did right? watch Frame of Mind. I thought that was, I thought that was creepier. And I, I thought it was a better episode than Night Terrors in terms of just the quality of the episode. You got Riker. That's the one where Riker is in the mental hospital and he goes back and forth between what he thinks is reality and what was real, what was not real. very Matrix-like. You know, and he's mm. in a play, but then the play is real. He's playing a um, an institutionalized person in in the play. Right. It's it's the, the sort of the mental institution as a horror space, which is also a, a frequent trope. And I thought that one was chill. Yeah, that, that was psychological was horror. I think is what you'd call that one. I mean, it reminded me like the insane asylum reminded me of of the Borg ship on uh, Picard season one. I thought it was a better episode. You know, whether or not it's true horror, it's the psychological aspect and not the the, yeah. the moody. It's not a Halloween type stuff. It can be any time of the year, right? And, I mean, you mentioned Night Terrors. That one has the Stephen King visions. Yeah. You know, people are hallucinating. They've got that one moment where a lot of people are under shrouds. Yep. Dead people under shrouds and they get up, you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. But again, it's a scientific mystery that Troy eventually figures out, yep. you know. Yeah, yeah. That one was a good one for Deanna. She didn't get a whole lot of episodes where she was the driving force. I did like aspects of that one, like, you know, Data being acting captain and ordering everybody to sleep at the end. <laughs> but but uh, I thought Frame <laughs> of Mind was the best of the three TNG episodes I watched and better than the official one that we uh, watched, the schisms. I did watch Conspiracy as well. Uh, the bug people, yeah. I was going to use the gore moment at the end for my show banner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got more gore than normal. Yeah. So uh, it kind of fit. And it's also paranoid. And it's about it's a body snatcher story mm -hmm. because it's about bugs, alien bugs that get into people and take them over. And if you look at Conspiracy, it's really kind of the template for Picard Season 3. Mm, oh, yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Starfleet's being taken over by something. And then, like in Picard Season 3, it's changelings and Borg. Here it's these, uh, I call them bluegills because that's what the uh, Star Trek <laughs> CCG called them. Okay. And they do mention those words in the show, so and they don't have a name. But at the end of Bluegill, uh, Bluegills, yeah, the end of Conspiracy, it's kind of the same as schisms. They sort of say, oh, there's a signal out there. It's like promises that either the schisms aliens or in this case, the Bluegills would return. Yeah, they never did. No, and the Bluegills are sort of, they sort of became the Borg. Mm. I, I I really think so because it's it's oh now there's a beacon and they're being called to Earth. They come from a distant sector that we've never explored, and they're sort of a 
I don't know, hive mind, because when you kill the queen, it's got a queen, and when you kill the queen, it kills it all. It does of have them. a queen. You know, I never made that connection before. I guess I, I probably haven't watched Conspiracy enough to have made that connection. I think it's just just morphed into that. You know, just it's kind of the same idea. There we go, you know. A lot scarier of the Borg, uh, a lot more story potential than, than the bug aliens inside. And the, the Borg, we we're, we don't we didn't pick any Borg episodes, but we should say the Borg are techno zombies, essentially. So there, there's something of horror to that in those episodes. Yeah, spe- for sure. special mention for the Borg episodes. There's definitely horror elements to almost all of them. Especially First Contact, really. Yeah. I think First Contact has the, uh, you got the comedy going down on Earth and you've got that zombie horror up top. For DS9, again, I don't think we picked the, necessarily the, the best one, but we watched Empok Nor. And this is a, we're trapped in the dark with a thing that kills us. It's aliens. Well, or so I thought. So <laughs> I felt like uh, in this episode, they go to Empok Nor, which is a sister station, an abandoned Cardassian station that looks just like DS9. You know, they're looking for parts and it's O'Brien with a bunch of people who could die, because except for Nog and Garrick. And Garrick becomes important because yeah, very important. the monster in there is, you know, psychotropic drug-fueled Cardassians who were in cryosleep. They come out, they're killers. And then Garrick kind of gets a sniff of that and also becomes a sort of paranoid killer. And, he, you know, he even kills one of the party. So it's a little bit possession in a way, like, or werewolfing. Where an ally yeah, becomes a, good the, analogy. a monster. Yeah, werewolf is a good analogy. Gets corrupted anyways. There's an influence and he's gets corrupted. And then you've got these other monsters. I think Garrick's the biggest monster of all because... Yeah, because he's the most effective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the other... It's just the other ones aren't so creepy. No. They're, they're just walking around and they do the thing, but they don't, they don't make him look like monsters, even though we're constantly in the dark. Once again, the direction is important. What did you think of this one as a... As a horror. I enjoyed it. Um, as a horror, there were some scary parts. Like, you know, the the shock of you, you zero in on, even though you know it's coming, at near the beginning where they have these cryotubes. And you know that anytime they start zeroing in on the cryotube, the eyes are going to open <laughs> of, the, mm-hmm. of the person inside. And that happened. You know, the, the situation, I think, was scary, right? It was moody lighting. Uh, the ship, they blew up their shuttle craft. You know, Garak gets very aggressive. And over time, you, we know him and we're more scared of him than we are of the other Cardassians, right? So it's, it's more disturbing than, than horror, maybe. Well. Yeah, I would I would say disturbing is a great place to go if you're doing horror because there's scaring, which like I said doesn't work on me, and then there's disturbing, and that stays with you. And I think that's part that's a horror trigger that you can pull. I did not recall that Garak actually killed the guy and got yeah. away with just an inquest. Like they never <laughs> mentioned it again because at the very end they said something about an inquest, but you know Garak's. You know, spot on DS9 was relatively tenuous <laughs> in the first place. Uh, I did not recall that at all. <laughs> I agree that it's, um, again, this is the problem with the episodic television trying to do horror and then using characters that you know. Yeah. You can't really get rid of them. No. They can't really, if he becomes a killer, he can't be killed. He can't, he has to be pardoned. Right. You know, it happens quite a lot. One of the things that I did like about this was that it had a theme that was rooted in horror because they're essentially their grave robbing mm. is what they're doing. And Mbachnor is the graveyard and you've got the zombies, you know, the, the Cardassian soldiers yep. that wake up yep. from their graves. In a horror movie, they would have bitten Garrick and Beric starts to turn, right? What is this graveyard then? And it's like the ghosts of Setlik 3. 
that haunt O'Brien, mm-hmm. the people he killed in the previous war. Yeah, that was good. And he doesn't want to talk about it, and Garrett keeps confronting him with it. He's a man haunted, and then we get into this graveyard. Uh, I thought the chief had an excellent role in this and get some more background on him, his work in, in the wars. We get development of Nog. It was another character that started out as, over time, just got a lot of, you know, much more interesting things happening to him. I loved the chief saying at the end, that he beat him because he was an engineer. It's like Tilly saying the power of math, right? Same kind of thing. I'm not a soldier anymore. I'm an engineer. You know, this and the other one I watched, it's been 10 years since I I watched Deep Space Nine. I'm like, I'm going back and starting at the beginning and going to watch them all because I just really enjoyed watching this. And the one that I said I thought was the best episode. Now, again, I don't know if it's the best horror. I'd be curious. I watched The Assignment. Too. And mm-hmm. this is the one where Keiko is possessed by the paw wraiths. It's the introduction of the paw wraiths. It is very creepy. Very creepy. And, you know, and I thought Rosalind Chow did a fantastic job. She acts like, you know, the paw wraith is in control. Um, Miles has to do what she, he, he, she says. There's, you know, she, you know, there's a lot of sciencey stuff there. He can't knock her out fast enough before she can kill. You know, O'Brien's trying to find an engineering solution to this. And, you know, and then there's the, the horror of, She's got their daughter, uh, someone you love that's possessed is very, very scary. They're all singing happy birthday to Miles. And he's like, I don't know, just genuinely suspenseful, I, I thought. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a strong one. It's a strong episode. I don't know if it fits into our... And fair play, because in Power Play in TNG, the reverse had happened. Oh, that's These right. evil aliens had taken over a bunch of the crew, and O'Brien. including <laughs> O'Brien. And O'Brien, right. O'Brien is, or someone in O'Brien's body yeah. is not quite running the... A creepy game, but he's threatening yeah. towards. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> his wife, his child. Yeah, yeah, and that's, uh, that's right. That's right. So anyway, that that was my favorite one of the episodes that I watched uh, over the last month. So DC Nine had a number of good possession stories. You know, there's one where Jake and um, Kira are possessed by uh, Powerades and the Prophet. You know, sort of the whole idea of the evil prophets was just brilliant, right? Like that final battle at the very end is basically heaven and hell. Uh, Ducat becomes very much a sort of uh, satanic figure. To leave Empok Nor behind, I'll just mention that, and we'll also talk about another things go bump in the night trapped in, within a, in a ship with monsters. Uh, we have another one on the list, but there are many that may have been better than Empok Nor in terms of selling the the horror mood and i don't know because i haven't necessarily watched each of them but macrovirus in voyager is very much aliens with janeway kind of dressing down as ripley you've got genesis in tng where everybody's devolving into different creatures and you wharf is obviously some sort of predator yeah, that's just sort of <laughs> yucky that one <laughs> you know it fits that mold right and then um i i would say Stranger Worlds Gorn episodes oh, yeah. have been like this. Which are tremendous, but yeah. yeah. Moving on to Voyager. Okay. Voyager, we picked The Haunting of Deck 12. Uh, Neelix tells a campfire story, so to speak, in the dark to kids, the Borg kids. Uh, they get drawn in. He adds horror details. There's like this creature, this gaseous creature yeah. that has taken over the computer, etc. Uh, when you see the nebula gas... There's a face in it. Obviously, that's an embellishment from Neelix. And Icheb acts as the skeptic. And so, essentially, Neelix is telling the story of how they met this creature before they had the Borg kids aboard. And now they're going to release the creature. And that throws the ship into darkness. And so the kids aren't scared. He scares them. 
<laughs> because that's how yeah. that's how spooky stories work. Yeah. They're cathartic. I thought this one was cute, but I wasn't scared really. No, you know, no. this is not really a scary story. It's a campfire horror story where you know the kids are you know like you said the bored kids. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. It's been a while since I watched any Voyager episodes, so I did enjoy it. Didn't make me want to go back and restart Voyager, but it it, it was entertaining. You know, there was some scary like Tom got burned and the bridge had no oxygen so there was some scary parts in there and the life form wanted to kill everybody so there's some some moments in there that had some scary aspects to it i think i'll tell you what i think hurt it in terms of horror yeah. it's the star trek formula because like like i said okay there's explanations there has to be a scientific explanation to everything and in this case there's no real mystery because we know from the beginning the entity isn't supernatural or very mysterious they you know they come to that conclusion pretty fast uh, yeah but what hurts it is that in Star Trek, as opposed to many other franchises, communication with aliens is paramount. So you must communicate with the monsters, like your enemy, the Klingons, the whoever. You have to make friends with them eventually. And that's what makes Star Trek Star Trek. So if you're going to communicate with the monsters, and this is actually the climax of this episode, that Janeway finds a way to communicate with the creature and defang it. You can't do that to Freddy or Jason or Michael Myers, okay? Right. They, or, or the Borg until... Well, even the Borg, you know... They have, you know, which I think cut down the Borg is... But the same way. I mean, yeah, a lot of people were upset when the, the more you show the Borg, the less scary they are. But the message of Star Trek is that the scary other, and originally that was Klingons, and then there are, of course, other alien species that became the other, eventually the, the other becomes your friend, Eventually, there is common ground, and that's what Star Trek teaches you. Xenophobia bad. Reach out, empathize, understand, and you can befriend. And then, I mean, for a lot of the episodes, they have to understand the monster. It's not about killing the monster. It's about understanding the monster, disarming the monster. I mean, that happened in the Lower Decks this week, you know? (laughs) There's this moss that can eat people, and they just, like, (laughs) start talking to it. And within the little stories and that particular episodes there's a monster jumps out of a pool in a cave rutherford finds a way to communicate with it it's like i'm just protecting my baby you know yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's the star trek message and that is anti-horror yeah it cuts into the purpose the nature of that horror i guess i don't know i think that's why it it never goes so far although you know kirk didn't care about that no (laughs) let's beam this guy widespread there's no understanding regic but some of these creatures, some of these stories, you kind of have to understand the creature and, and sort of disarm it, you know. And I, I would say for Voyager, uh, another one you might want to watch is like Persistence of Vision or something. It's one of those where people hallucinate a lot, mm-hmm. where there's kind of gory violence or gory wounds, a lot like Tom Paris's gory burn in this one. So Persistence of Vision is maybe one of those. And they also play with the Jane Eyre holodeck yeah, thing. Yeah, she's on the holodeck, yeah. So there's that. Uh, element that that speaks to some sort of gothic horror. So the last one we we put on our uh, assignment list was Impulse from Enterprise. This is the Vulcan zombie movie. They they find a ship in the Expanse, a damaged Vulcan ship. All hands seem lost. They don't know. They, They send a shuttle there, dock, and then they find that the Vulcans aboard have all gone mad because of some element in the asteroid field where they're stuck. And they are essentially zombies. T'Pol will fall prey to this as well and become more paranoid as if she's been bitten by a zombie. Mm-hmm. So this is a lot like Empok Noor. How does it compare for you? I liked Empok Noor more, but they had some really good parts on this. I, I thought the cold open 
was pretty good with the Paul screaming in sickbay. I thought it was a good construction of the problem. The asteroid field was so thick that they had to take a, you know, the Archer and Paul and Reed and a red shirt took the shuttle to the Vulcan ship because they couldn't take the Enterprise in there. I thought that was, you know, an effective setup. I don't know. I thought that Paul losing it over time, you know, I, I was never the hugest fan of Jolene Blalock, but but I thought she did pretty good on her sort of progression of paranoia to rage. And I thought she was relatively convincing on that. I don't know if you agree. Blaylock got better yeah. season three and four. I thought, okay, like the character's gelling now, where it was really stiff at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, this is an episode where I think the Vulcans work better than the Cardassians did in Empok Nor. They, you know, they keep coming. You keep shooting them and they keep coming. Well, there's more of them, too. There's 140 of yeah. them. As opposed yeah, there's to just like four. two or three. <laughs> and while it's more interesting for... Because when Garrick turns in Empok Nor... Nobody knows. Right. That's true. You know, you don't know. He's sweating a lot. <laughs> he goes on, you know, on his own way. But by the end, he's stringing up dead people, you know, as a decoration. For her, like, she knows it's going to happen. Yeah. And that's very scary. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. It's more about, oh, I know this is going to happen to me. I, I can feel it inside me and I'm losing control and it's, it's, I'm werewolfing. <laughs> and the zombies were smarter, I thought. They trapped them. They still understood the ship, right. right? They had it's, to go through engineering so they could escape. You know, they're, yeah, that's right. They ha they retain some of their intelligence, at least some of it. I mean, I think over time it deteriorated. It was a little convenient that T'Pol was the only one that could save. What are you going to do? Well, she did been in there for weeks and, and for T'Pol, like it just happened. And, and there's also like at the end, there's like a, like a, she wakes up in a dream, you know, there's, yeah. it's good, right? Yeah. The nightmare at I the did. end. I like that. I forgot about that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> because what happens is there. They were going to have a movie night to sort of restore some semblance of normalcy. This is not long after the Zindi attack. And it turns out that DePaul goes into a rage the movie night and boom, she wakes up and it was her dreaming about the movie night and still being infected when, in, when she had already been cured. I thought that was pretty good. That was, that was a good way to end it. I just watched Day of the Dead. Oh. George Romero, the third, Classic his movie. third zombie movie. I don't like it much. I, I like Night and Dawn a lot better, but it feels like Day of the Dead was the template for impulse because it's also got it starts with a dream so it's a little bit like the cold open here but it's also the dream from the end you know and and there's a dream later as well where she's the female character they escape at the end she runs to the helicopter the helicopter door opens and there's a, a zombie in there and then she wakes up interesting yeah so no there wasn't mm -hmm. but yeah. <laughs> you know she's safe after all so there's that moment and that cold open also is a uh, in the movie is also like a bad dream and that's like the best moment in the whole movie and then of course you got zombie and also, in, in some way, that's the movie that is about military people and scientists kind of arguing about what to do about the zombies. Yeah. Well, they had the uh, red shirt guy do that, too. Um, what they call those uh, soldiers that came on the Enterprise? Mako's. He was one of them, I think, right? He wasn't a, a regular Starfleet guy. So I thought that, that was interesting that they took him. And he wants to kill the zombies, and they're going... They're not zombies. Right. They're people. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, infected. So it's kind of the, I feel like Day of the Dead is a lot like Impulse. It's the same kind of arguments. It's the, the same kind of, we are explaining the zombie apocalypse. We're trying to find a medical reason and a cure for them. So there's a lot of that in Day of the Dead. And here it is in Star Trek, which works better. Well, Star Trek obviously was going to go there, whereas I didn't think George Romero's movies were going to go there. <laughs> uh, so that was perhaps my criticism of it. 
that it spent too much time on that, not enough on zombie attacks and gore. I'm sure part of the reason I like the Deep Space Nine episode a little better is, you know, I like Deep Space Nine generally better and the characters and all that. But this one, I thought the you've talked a bit about the direction and and the filming. I thought this was um, dark. It was actually darker lit. It was hard frankly hard for me to see uh, always what was going on i that, maybe that's just me with my old eyes but i i just felt it was a little little too dark for me to really see what was going on that always aggravates me when if i'm in the movies or in a tv show and it's it's you can't really see what's going on or you can't hear what's going on so that may be a part of it i will say this though i i mentioned before it's been probably 10 years since i watched deep space 9 you know i haven't watched enterprise since it came out other than you know an episode here or there 20 years. And um, I, you know, I'm like, you know what? When I'm done with, or maybe concurrently with Deep Space Nine, I don't know. But I, I'm intrigued enough to go back and watch, especially how much I've been enjoying Strange New Worlds and stuff. So I, I'm going to just give it a shot because it's been a while since I uh, watched so many. So um, if nothing else, this was definitely good for me reinvigorating some of that. While we're waiting for the last season of Discovery, I guess I'll, I'll watch these. Here we are at Final Thoughts. Like I said, I'm not sure we watched the spookiest or scariest. What was the scariest for you? Is it still the assignment? For me... I think it's got a personal thing that makes it scary. For me, it's a personal thing. Thinking about my wife being possessed, holding our daughter, you know, like that, was very scary for me. So that, to me, was the scariest. And knowing some about who the Pa Wraiths developed into and how sort of embodiment of evil they were, maybe that foreknowledge or whatever you call that was was part of how much i anyway that was the one i thought was the scariest i'm I'm sticking with that as my i think that's perfectly legitimate because i think it accesses something that we haven't really talked about is that in a continuing show like this yeah you can't kill people you can rack up a body count but you're not going to care about those people that you knew for five minutes Mm -hmm. you know in a tv show uh, and understanding a movie, you don't get to know the characters all that well within an hour and a half or whatever. But they could have killed Keiko. Keiko was a supporting character, right? I mean, so there was real jeopardy, yeah. But the thing is, even if you're not going to kill them, the fact that characters you know are placed in such a situation that that becomes relatable because you know them. So you know they're not acting correctly. And while they're possessed, what if they do something that's outrageous, that breaks them, you know, or breaks someone else? Like if you put your characters in those kinds of positions because people know the characters so well, it becomes a different kind of horror, a different kind of scare. So I think that's why that episode works. That's why Empok Noor's yep. uh, portrayal of Garrick works. Yes. To be fair, the going back to the first one we watched with Scotty, and, and what, what did Scotty really do? That's scary, you know, because you know Scotty and love him. That's the, the same kind of thing. And I think in terms of production, like which of these episodes is the most like a horror film that were on the list, it's Wolf in the Fold. That's probably true. Even if I include Frame of Mind, even if I include Conspiracy, which is the goriest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) even if I include The Assignment, I I still think Wolf in the Fold is the one that made to be horror, looks like horror, the horror moments work, and it goes a little too far. It's a little transgressive, like horror films should be. So I think Wolf in the Fold, to me, is the most horror-y of all of them, (laughs) which is not to say it's necessarily the best. (laughs) Right. Wow. Woof. Well, that was that was fun. That was I won't say it was scary, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Are you um, the kids trick or treat? Go to your house? Um, we don't get a lot. We don't have a whole lot of of uh, kids come by, but we'll have a few. So we've got the candy ready to go. And uh, okay. what about yourself? You get no. I don't decorate the house. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want to see any kids okay, here. Okay, so lights are out, and uh, it just you'll be reading my candlelight that night, so nobody comes to your right, door. Right, I don't. This is a new address. Oh, that's right. It's my first Halloween here, oh. so who knows? The street has a couple of graveyards, which by, by which I mean people who have set up graveyards in their yards. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a couple of houses that well, I guess the Pumpkin King lives here because it's really <laughs> decorated. So I don't know, but post. COVID also, you know, it's, it's do kids you just go to random strangers' houses or do you just go to trusted family friends, etc.? I think there's a lot of trick-or-treating that's being done like that rather than house-to-house, house, like back in the day. Because can you trust strangers? Can you trust just germs in the air? You know, I think a lot of parents maybe shy away from that now and to just drive the kids to different addresses and that may be it. But I haven't decorated, so that's a sure sign, kids. <laughs> also, this is something that I want to do someday. I might this year who knows when they go trick or treat i want to say trick <laughs> i want to dare somebody just trick and watch them go uh, uh. <laughs> oh you didn't prepare a trick go home <laughs> i want to kind of try that one day we'll see if i ever have the guts just only do that with the little kids you do it with the big kids you not like what you wake up to the don't next do morning. it to teenagers because you're gonna get tricked <laughs> uh all right well um our last trick here we'll be uh, hearing Paul describe what's happening next on uh, Batman Family Reunion or whatever else you're working on. We're now solidly into the detective run and enjoying it. We've got about a year left to go of episodes. Oh. And um, really, you know, we're going to start to see a lot more of the extended, shall we say, Batman family. We've seen the demon and the human target in the latest uh, issue. And we'll see some other, you know, oddly connected members of the Batman family. So it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. We're continuing having guests on the show. And so we're just uh, have, having a good time and enjoying things that we're reading. Think it's really interesting to see how the book has evolved over its five-year journey. So uh, that's been a fun part for me. And that's here on the network, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, well, Paul. Well, thank you for having me, Captain. Don't get lost in the bowels of the ship. I'll let you go back to your quarters while I stick around for subspace transmissions. That's your feedback on our previous episode. Hey, Sean, do you want to go over the checklist to make sure we are ready for the next phase of the Batman family reunion? Sure thing, Paul. Robin and Batgirl in team-up action? Check. Fried chicken? Check. Mambat fighting a were-jaguar? Check. Deviled eggs? Check. Potato salad? Check. Without the raisins? Of course. The Huntress fighting Catwoman and Poison Ivy? Check. Lemonade? Check. Alfred and Commissioner Gordon keeping a secret from Bruce Wayne? Check and check. Reprints for all new stories. New stories and reprints until issue 10, and then nothing but brand new stories from there on out. Giant size issues? A mere giant size until issue 16, and then dollar comics from issues 17 to 20 through the end of the run in Detective. Guest list? Absolutely. We're having a number of bat relatives visit the reunion, so listen in for your favorite bat cousin. All right, great. Then we're all ready for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, where we talk about Batman Family, the great comic book from the 70s and 80s. We'll discuss not only the stories, but also the text pages and ads, and we'll also find out what the Batman Family was doing on the newsstands that month. And since this is a reunion, we're inviting all of you, the Bat kinfolk, to listen in and to be part of the show. Look for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Incoming subspace transmissions. Your feedback on our previous episode, which uh, was entitled, Give Me That Underused Star Trek Cast with my guest DC Dave. 
Doug Adamson was first to chime in, said excellent subject matter uh, this week, and Dave brought some excellent homework to show Siskoid. As a fan of Enterprise, I know I'm likely the only one who likes Enterprise over most of the shows. The exceptions are Picard Season 2 and 3 and Strange New Worlds. I heartily agree that the show had some rough moments, particularly after 9-11, but the underused Mayweather still frustrates me. Over on Voyager, Harry, Kim, and Paris were at least a comedy double act to give him a little something to do, but Mayweather had such a great backstory that was barely tapped. But Chakotay, they wasted him, and it showed in his performances. I always felt the best choice would have been to try and write him out of the series. But obviously, that wasn't going to happen. Maybe they could have swapped him for the Mirrorverse version, or something to at least give him something to do. Maybe a Borg swap for Seven of Nine. But then I always found Voyager frustrating anyway, so maybe that's about right. We have Jeff R says, you went into the behind the scenes stories for the older shows, but not Strange New Worlds, where Ortegas's actor was having to understate a very tough time during uh, season two while it was filmed. And so more intensive stories for Ortegas were shifted around. We can, in fact, look at the season in an archaeological way and try to reconstruct her original plots. Flying Blind would maybe make sense to have been an Ortegas song, which would probably mean she was originally in the time travel story, either instead of or with Lon. The Con Dilemma works with erasing a friend as uh, the consequence and the one who fell for Kirk. That's one dinosaur model we can put together uh, from those bones. And I don't know if Jeff has any real information on the original scripts or whatever, to me, I, I don't think that quite works. Uh, Christina Chong was the one with the song and dance background who pressed the production to make a musical and got her wish. So if Ortegas gets Flying Blind, which actually uh, the actual title is uh, How Would That Feel? I don't think that has anything to do with Ortegas unless we're saying that she was in the time travel episode and in love with someone in there. I, I think these stories would be much weaker had they been about Ortegas. So I, I'm skeptical of that archaeology, but who knows, right? And hopefully over the years, we'll get that kind of background information on the show. And the thing is, well, to, to answer the actual point, while I become interested in the history of the shows, once they're done, I don't really like to do that kind of research while the show is going on because it gets very meta for me, it gets spoilery. It kind of messes with my enjoyment. So uh, if you're coming at this from an informed place, Jeff, apologies. But hopefully no one is benched for outside reasons in season three. Obviously, we can't reference things that we were not aware of. Excellent conversation and an auspicious network debut for Dave, says Flanger. That's Paul Hicks. I feel like listening to podcasts is like hanging around the blob. Sooner or later, you're going to get absorbed and become part of the mass. Plus, the mass will inevitably terrorize a town. Welcome to the blob, DC Dave. Chris Franklin says, great discussion. I would personally add Sulu to the list, especially after he was made captain in the undiscovered country. George Takei pushed for a Captain Sulu TV series, but was constantly turned down. Maybe the TNG DS9 Voyager showrunners didn't want to set a show in the past during that era, but later we got Enterprise, which was further back than Toss. Imagine if they'd done that, though, and we had cameos from the TOS crew, side characters, etc., showing us stories from the period between the films and TNG, and most importantly, we could have fleshed out Sulu beyond Takei's natural charms, which sold the character 
in many ways uh, than the scripts and screen time never did. The same can be said for Nichols and Koenig as well. And to a lesser extent, Duan. Yeah, Chris, he was on my short list, uh, Sulu that is, but I'm glad I could include him, if not Takei, in one of my story pitches. And finally, Rob Kelly says, my favorite choice for underrated Trek character was Ensign Rowe from TNG. I thought she was a great addition to the cast and Michelle Forbes was great in the role. And then they did her dirty in the final season, which made me really angry. I was happy they brought her back for Picard and she was redeemed a bit. Uh, Still, I think she was underutilized. And I completely agree. I think uh, I count her as uh, one of my favorite characters on TNG, but in this particular experiment, we crossed out her name. She wasn't really regular cast, uh, nor was Barkley, who someone could make the same claim that he deserved to be there. They were recurring characters, but not cast members. The Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like... Doug Van Diver, who's been flying these ships with me for a long while. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, I'm reminding you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. 